Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you all, uh, everyone that's been praying. Um, I feel so inadequate being up here. Um, so thanks for being gracious and, and let, me, let me share. I found this website and it's a, uh, a favourite child detector. And so if you've got uh, siblings, this machine will tell you uh, whether you're the favourite or not. And uh, in my family, I was one of four, and so it was a bit of a battle trying to please mum and dad and trying to get their attention and be noticed. Um, I just didn't put it in, but it'd be funny to sort of see. And it's funny, as kids, we, we, we do things to please our parents. And um, as we get older, teenagers, we try and please our friends. And in, as an adult, we try and please our boss. We're always trying to please people. And why is it that we put so much effort into pleasing others? Is it that we want to be loved? Is it that we want to be accepted? We may be scared. As Christians, our aim and our purpose in life is to please God. That's what it is. That's what we're here for. Not that he will love us more. Not that he will accept us. Not because we are scared, but because that's what we were created for. Now, chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians moves into a new section. Paul starts off by writing, Finally, brothers. So, the first half of this book, Paul's been looking at what Jesus has done for them in saving them. The second half looks at the practical instructions as a response. Paul addresses the vital importance of inward belief being matched by outward behaviour. It's the gospel being visibly expressed in the life of a real church. I think it's quite fitting, um, considering our theme at Monty with this series, with how then shall we live. Now remember the church in Thessalonica is just a few months old. So what does God have to say through Paul to this new congregation? Although he's writing to, a church, to the church in Thessalonica, he addresses three important issues relevant to everyone, not only for that church at that particular time in history, but also for anyone, anywhere, at any time. He looks at how we can please God in sex, in work and in death. So it doesn't matter what age you are, where you live, these aspects are applicable to you good having young people in this morning and uh, hopefully I can make it uh, relevant and hopefully I can um, explain in a way that you guys understand. Thanks Andrew for bringing us this morning's Bible reading. It was the intention of the teaching committee that in order to cover the whole book we would be looking at verses 1 to 12 of this chapter. And as I've been studying it uh, and meditating on it, I've felt led by the Holy Spirit Uh, to focus on verses 1 to 8. I'd love to flesh out more of the remaining verses, but unless you want to stay until the afternoon, um, we just don't have time. So please have your Bibles open. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we dig deeper into God's Word. It's been my prayer this week that the message God is giving you today will encourage you, will inspire you, will motivate you and challenge you to please him more and more. 
So what does it mean? What does it mean to please God? You may be familiar with a quote from Philip Yancey in relation to God's grace. Uh, that there is nothing that you can do to make God love us more and nothing that can, um, we can do to make God love us less. Now, this is true, but this morning we're going to look at how we can live to please God. Not that he will love us more, not that we will earn our salvation, but because of how we live that will make him glad, that he will be pleased and he will be glorified. For pleasing God shows our dependence on him. What you spend your life doing shows where your heart is. So verse 1, Paul writes, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. So there is a way that we can live to please God. Therefore, there's also a way that we can live that's not going to please God, it's going to displease God. Many Christians think that believing is just enough. That as long as, as long as I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that's enough for me. I've said the prayer, I'm saved, uh, now I can do whatever I like. Their life's no different from an unbeliever. When in fact God is calling us to surrender our whole lives, we should be doing all that we can to please God. There's a story of a boy who was being pressured to, to, um, into some wrong behaviour by his friends. They were throwing some stones and breaking some windows. But he was, he was determined not to throw the stones. And so his mate started teasing him, calling him chicken, all that kind of stuff. One of them said, are you scared of your father? Are you scared of what he's going to do to you? The boy replied, no, I'm not afraid of my father or what he'll do to me, but I'm afraid of what this action will do to him. That is, that is the perspective of a child who wants to please his father. So in order to please God, we need to obey his commands. Now, in obeying God, it's an activity that we, should be, um, that we shouldn't be grumbling about, but rather it's a revolutionary delight. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Anyone who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar and the truth is not in him. So to obey God is to please him. Paul calls on the Thessalonians to please God by living in holiness and love and working hard. Good news of Jesus leads to good lives lived for Jesus. Well, what does it mean to live a holy life? We'll get to that shortly. First of all, I think it's important to highlight the fact that this is a church um, that that Paul's writing to. It's actually a good church. It's doing well. Remember the report that Timothy brought back in chapter 3? The church is known throughout all Macedonia for their faith and love. Even though they are going well, Paul still finds a need to write to them. Verse 1, We instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. I think it's a mistake today when we see other brothers and sisters in Christ living out their faith known as godly men and women and assume they don't need exhortation. They don't need warning. They don't need counsel or encouragement. They have it all figured out. But Paul makes an effort to encourage them even when they are doing well. 
In fact, he says, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do what? To do this more and more. The apostle commends the believers for their practical holiness but urges them to advance to new levels of accomplishment. Holiness is a process, not an achievement. I think of Rob Freeman and um, someone I look up to. He's a faithful and godly man, but he needs exaltation. Even though he's mature in his faith, he needs encouragement to keep going to the end. Nancy, she's an inspiration for us all. What a woman of of God. Um, But she needs encouragement too. Uh, She needs to be reminded to keep her eyes on Jesus, like we all do. Now before we start talking about the heavier stuff, let me remind you about the authority of this teaching, where it comes from. The Greek word used for instructions in verse 2 was originally a military word. It usually denotes authority of commands. These instructions that are being given are not my words, they're not Paul's, they're God's, they're the authority of the Lord Jesus. While he, was, while he, has, um, while he was with them, Paul repeatedly charged them with the authority of the Lord Jesus that they should please God by living, um, practic- living out their practical holiness. So there's a couple of words in this passage uh, that you may not understand. So let me, um, let me explain a few of them. Verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, what's sanctification? Sanctification is a process. To, to sanctify means to set apart for divine use. The Holy Spirit renews the believer to their whole nature in the image of God and enables them to perform good works. It is a process that doesn't just happen automatically. You don't say the Lord's Prayer and sit back and wait for God to do the rest and sanctify you. It is the work of God in which believers cooperate. You allow God to take over your life and work in cooperation with the Spirit. David's been reading um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 as a benediction the last few weeks. And um, it reads... May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. It's God who sanctifies. We've got to allow him. I don't know if you've ever seen a drill sergeant commanding new recruits in an army. I can picture them um, all lined up and the drill sergeant walking backwards and forwards, um, yelling his head off and um, saying, You are mine. Uh, You've signed your life over and now you are mine. I don't care what your background is, who you are, you are mine. Now being in God's army is a little bit different. Um, We don't have God breathing down our neck yelling at us like that. But it's the same sort of way. We're giving over our life. It's no longer ours. It's his. He makes the calls. He tells us how to live. So, to be sanctified, it says, is to avoid sexual immorality. Now, let's just be clear what God's instruction to avoid sexual immorality, um, what what that means. Um, 
God doesn't. God says to avoid sexual immorality, uh, not sex altogether. Uh, this is consistent with all Scripture. God gave us sex to enjoy. Um, it's, it's a gift, a gift He created for humanity, and is therefore to be accepted, experienced, and enjoyed in the context in which it was given. Hebrews 13:4 says, "Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure." Paul also tells us in um, 1 Corinthians um, 7, chapter, chapter 7, verse 2 um, about marriage. And he says, Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So the Bible makes it quite clear. Sex is a gift from God. It's for a man and a woman and it's for a married couple. Anything outside this, the Bible considers sexually immoral. Now, the Greek term for sexual immorality is porneia, where we derive the word pornography. An example of sexual immorality is fornication. Now, what's fornication? Fornication is where two people are acting as if they are married when actually they're not. So, touching each other and sleeping together in a way God designed for only a man and woman who are married to each other. God said this close physical relationship is for married people only. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So sexual immorality includes sexual relations before marriage and wrong sexual relations among married people. And this is what what we call adultery. So young people, this is what it means. Your mum may not go and live with another man as her husband. Simple as that. And your dad, he can't go and live with another woman to be, her, um, to be his wife. That's what the seven commandments are all about, isn't it? You shall, you shall not commit adultery. And when mum and dad live this way, the child is blessed. Sexual purity pleases God because that's how he intended us to live. This call to sexual purity was quite foreign to these people during this time. The Greeks and Romans never considered this kind of sexual behaviour outside of marriage as immoral. What would we call sexual, what we would call sexual promiscuity of all kinds was simply an accepted way of life. Paul is concerned that some of the Thessalonian Christians may fall back into, this, into their former ways. Isn't this much like our own society today? It's hard being the odd one out. I can remember at school, you'd hear the stories on Monday about who slept with who on the weekend. And when I got to uni, if you didn't sleep with someone, well, you're wasting your life. These days it's quite normal to live with your partner before you get married or find someone better when you've had enough of being married but it's a lie it's an absolute lie and don't let the world fool you you're not missing out and if you aren't married please God by remaining celibate and not having sex if you are married please God by remaining faithful and committed to your husband or wife let's, let's not think about uh, that only sexual sin is in view here is the behaviour of sleeping with a woman 
not your wife or a man, not your husband. Verse 5, Paul refers um, to passionate lust. To control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust. The issue here is not just behaviour, but also sexual desires that, that dominate your life in a way they shouldn't. For our day, I, could think, um, I think we could include the desires that lead to the use of pornography and desires that lead to fantasy, a fantasy life. And masturbation is so often embedded in it for men and women. Pornography is like a cancer. The damage can be rather extensive before any hint of problem exists. Porn can eat away at a healthy healthy sexuality of a marriage, slowly perverting and destroying what God intended sex in marriage to be. The literal translation of verse 4 is to possess his own vessel. The word vessel in this verse may mean a wife or it may mean um, a man's own body. Peter uses the word vessel in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 to mean wife, whereas Paul uses the word in reference to the body in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. So we've got two different um, uses here. The RSV understands it to mean wife and so that reads in, um, second, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, that each one of you know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honour, whereas the NIV um, adopts the view that, is meant, uh, that body is meant. So it reads, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Now, whichever way is... Um, it still means to be, uh, to be holy and honourable to God, whether it's with your wife or your own body. Um, a commentator by the name Gordon Fee alludes that the word vessel could actually refer to, a, to specifically a man's sex organ, so his penis. Now, which in light of the context makes sense. The man is to gain mastery over his own sexual organ. Now, guys... Um, I think you can understand what I mean when I say, you know, keep it in your pants. Um, Put the gun back in the holster. Paul could be saying, take control of your penis. Did I just say that in church? Yeah. (laughs) (coughs) Yeah. (laughs) Take control of your body. Take control of your penis. God has called you to be different. Don't let your penis decide how you live. Verse 5, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. There is a difference between lust and love. Lust is a selfish pleasure. On the other hand, love is the opposite. Love is the other person-centred. So lust is selfish, love is other person-centred. When you lust a person, you use them. When you love a person, you serve them. When you lust at a person, you use them. When you love a person, you serve them. People who don't know God think of sex as a means of gratifying the passion of lust. To them, celibacy is a weakness and marriage means of making sin legal. When God calls you to himself, he justifies you freely by faith in Christ 
on the basis of Christ's blood and righteousness and he calls you to a life of holiness, which in this context refers explicitly to sexual purity. This is the practical sanctification of faith. So we've covered the what. What it means to please God. I want to ask the question now, why? Why should we please God? Why does God want us to be sexually pure? I've got five reasons. Number one, our bodies belong to God. If you call yourself a Christian, you are being sanctified and your body belongs to God. As, writ- as written in 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you ra- who received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. We have bodies so that God might be glorified in them. That's why God gave you a body. Whether it's tall or short, pretty or plain, muscular or weak, this is what Paul said in Philippians 1.20. It's my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Our bodies are given to us so that we may use them uh, to make Christ look good and be valuable in us. Many Christians have the attitude of what's wrong with this or that. Um, I'm free to do whatever I like. We're not, we're not bound by the law anymore. But look at Jesus' life. He lived his whole life to please God. In, cha- in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I always do what pleases him. Christ is our role model. Just like Jesus, everything we do must please God. When we sin sexually, it impacts individuals and families. People get hurt. But the most devastating thing is that God is hurt and it impacts God. Ultimately, it violates him. Two, another reason, it's God's will. Verse three, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Sexual purity is God's will and Christians love the will of God. Christ-likeness means that we delight to do God's will. If you're young and you're asking, what's God's will in my life? Well, I think it's quite clear, isn't it? It says, um, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So what does it mean for um, God in your life? What's God's will for your life? To remain pure. Psalm 40 verse 8, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he, he who called you is holy, so he, so he um, called you to be holy. Oh, I've got a typo. Um, and I don't know my Bible. Um, just as he has called you to be holy, so you be holy as well. Be holy because I am holy. When the Thessalonians embraced Paul's gospel, they were responding to God's effectual call. That call did not have its goal in impurity, but rather a life of holiness. Number three, it's honourable. Controlling your body, impurity is a matter of honour, either being honoured 
by the community or showing honour to your wife and other women or to your husband and other men. Verse 4. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Sexual purity stands out, doesn't it? Um, When you're standing with your mates and they're fooling around and um, treating sex as if it's just a self-gratifying pleasure, standing up and saying that that it's it's pure, it's an honourable thing. They're probably going to laugh at you and think you're crazy, but it's a noble thing to do. Four, it builds up the church. The incentive of Christian love which seeks the good of others. The sexual purity is is the loving way to treat others. Verse 6, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. When we sin sexually, we are not seeking the highest good of others. It is not Christian love that moves us um, in any of this. So, um, when we when we fantasise about um, people in pornography, um, when we when we are unfaithful to our our partners. It doesn't edify the church. It's simply selfish desires. Christians are told to love other people. They don't use them. And Christians live in sexual purity. This actually strengthens the church. It builds up society. Don't think for a minute that sexual immorality is a private sin. You can get away with it and no one will notice. Not only does God notice, but it also affects, it always affects someone. When a marriage breaks down, the couple still carry the hurt. When a mum and dad split, the children are torn in two. When you watch pornography, think of the woman that you're, that's being used and abused. Number five, God's vengeance. In verse, verse six, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. So if you turn from the Lord as, if you turn from the Lord as your treasure and your all-satisfying pleasure and make a, a master out of sex, sooner or later you will meet the wrath of God. Sexually, sexual immorality is a sin against God's Holy Spirit. It is a sin against one's own body but it is also a sin against other persons. So Paul adds that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother by stealing the affections of the brother's wife. Though these offences are not generally punished in criminal courts today, the Lord is the avenger of all such. Sexual sins bring on a terrible harvest of physical and mental disorders in this life. But these are nothing compared to the eternal consequences if they are unconfessed and unforgiven. Paul had forewarned the Thessalonians of this. Verse 8, anyone who rejects instruction rejects God. So anyone who rejects this instruction is simply saying, um, God, I'm not going to listen to you. God gives you the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God promised that he would establish a new covenant in which the Holy Spirit would write the law on, on people's hearts and cause them to obey. This new covenant reality 
which has been um, inaugurated by Christ makes sexual sin inexcusable. To reject the giver of the Holy Spirit is to simply cut oneself off from the sanctifying power that enables a Christian to be blameless in holiness in the second coming. So we've touched on the what, talked about the why, now I want to talk about how. How can we please God? How can we please God when sex is everywhere? Pornography is pushed into our screens. Um, Sex before marriage is, is almost expected. How can we actually please God? I want us to focus on the, on the long-term triumph um, and then mention a few tactical moves that we can use um, to fight sexual purity. So the long-term, how? Um, is found in verse 5. Um, but we'll start reading from verse 4. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen, who do not know God. So there it is. Like the heathen or pagans who do not know God. When you give way to lustful passion, you act like people who don't know God. Which means knowing God is the path to sexual purity. If you're struggling with sexual impurity in mind or body, the immediate and long-term strategy is to know God. Lustful passion is the mark of Gentiles who don't know God. You might be cynical and thinking, um, what about all those priests that have done despicable acts towards children? What good is knowing um, is the knowledge of God then? And I say with tremendous confidence they don't know God. They might know about God but they might not that they don't really know God. So no ten thousand facts about God is not knowing God. John chapter eight verse thirty two Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Knowing God, knowing Christ is a pathway to sexual purity. But we should ask in closing, knowing what about him? Knowing him in what way? Let me mention three things about God that may help use, um, that he may use to set you free and keep you free. First one, know the patience of God. Look at verse 1. Finally then, finally then, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. See what he says about God here? He says these Christians have room for improvement. Do this more and more. And it says that they are pleasing God as in fact you are living. So they're doing well, but do more. More sexual purity. Uh, 
Um, he covers our sin. He's pleased with our success through faith and patient with our failures. He knows they weren't perfect. These Thessalonians, they were good, but they weren't perfect. And he's asking them to, for more. No one is there yet. We can always be more pure. More sexual purity, more. This is a daily battle. It's a fight. Don't ever relax and think you've made it. Or don't think of giving up when the patience of... And just know the patience of God and allow him to keep going. So know the patience of God. Second, know the power of God. Um, In the previous chapter we read Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of God and of God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Notice that he asked Christ to strengthen them. It's God that it's God that empowers you. God that gives you that fights for you. Know God's power. Third thing, know the holiness of God. God is the most holy person in all the universe. He's the sum of everything pure. Knowing this can, um, in our experience, uh, is what is what can motivate us. Um, and and we can defeat deceitful pleasures of of lust and and other things. Paul said it like this, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's some overarching overarching um, principles, knowing the patience of God, knowing the power of God and knowing the holiness of God. Let's mention a few practical strategies. First of all, we need to change our mindset. We need to ask questions. Um, we should be asking different questions on how we live. We shouldn't be asking um, what's wrong with this or what's wrong with that but how can we please God? So instead of asking what's wrong with this movie it only has mild sexual references we should be asking how can this movie help me please God? Instead of asking what's wrong with flirting it won't go anywhere we should be asking How can flirting help me please God? Instead of asking, I really love my girlfriend, how far can I go without a marriage licence? We should be asking, how can I love my girlfriend and please God? Self-control. Pleasing God through sexual purity requires self-control. Being ruled by Christ, not our bodies. Verse 4. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable. Notice self-control is something that we learn. It doesn't come natural. It certainly doesn't come natural for me. We have to make an active choice. We have to choose self-control um, because we have the Holy Spirit. Um, when an impure thought enters our mind, we have about five seconds to fight it before it consumes us. So whatever it takes, get rid of it. You might be up late watching TV or surfing the net and an image pops up. Pray that God will help you and turn that TV and computer off or turn the phone off. 
which leads on to avoid. I think it's important to know our areas of weaknesses in order to avoid putting ourselves in situations of temptation. Verse 3 says, avoid sexual immorality. Don't go near it. Don't flirt with it. Don't give it a foothold. Ephesians 5.3 says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Proverbs 6.27 says, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burnt? I've always admired the story of Joseph. Remember what he did when he was um, with Potiphar's wife and she started making a move on him? What did he do? He ran. Dropped everything, literally, and ran. So what do you need to avoid? Could be a place, could be a person, could be time. Maybe you need to get rid of something. What are you filling your mind with? What are you watching on TV? What kind of music are you listening to? What sort of books are you reading? What places are you spending most of your time at? If it's not helping you please God, then get rid of it. Don't go there. The internet can be a very helpful resource, but it can also be a great source of evil. Is God pleased with the way that you use the internet? Did you know that you can um, live without a TV? I admire Rob and Maz. They've decided not to have one. They've decided that it doesn't help them please God. So what's the point of having one? What do you need to avoid in your life? Lastly, discipleship. We need to help each other in this area. Paul was a great model for discipleship. He spent time with the Thessalonians and he followed up with them. He, spent, he encouraged them, he reminded them of the truth of God. We need to share with one another. Have the guts to go there and ask, how's your sex life? What does that look like? Small groups? Mentoring? We need to be asking, how are, struggles, how are your struggles with sexual purity? Have you got control of your body? What are your weaknesses? These are mine. I find this helps. How can we help each other to please Jesus? And let's not forget uh, those that are single and aren't married. How can we encourage them in sexual purity? Could be feeling lonely. Have them over for a meal. Let's show brotherly love and encourage each other to please God more and more. And that I'm going to pray in a moment. Then I want us to reflect and think about what is God what is God saying to you this morning? <coughs> Let me pray. Father God, you are such a holy God and you have called us to be holy like you are. We thank you for giving your Holy Spirit to help us do that. Father, I pray for each one 
each one of us here that you will call us and sanctify us Lord to a life of sexual purity may we honour you with our bodies may we love each other like you love us I pray this in Jesus name Amen